As we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. The scriptures reveal this with indubitable certainty. We know that you are awesome. We know that you are good. We know that you are holy. And here in your word, we learn how to respond to you. And Lord, we pray that as we read your word this evening, that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts, to open our minds, and to lead us in the way of life everlasting so that we may be transformed evermore into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this evening we continue the sermon series that we've been doing where we go through the nature of God using the themes that the kids of our church learned in Vacation Bible School a couple weeks ago. We're exploring how God is our creator, provider, protector, savior, and king, and what this means for how we live our lives in response to these truths. And so using Psalm 104, Pastor Carl led us in a meditation about God's work of creation, 
From the story in 1 Kings 17, we learned about how God provides for us in our times of need, just as he provided for Elijah at the brook Kareth. From Daniel chapter 6, we learned about how God protects us in times of trial, just as he protected Daniel in the lion's den. And next week, Pastor Carl will be teaching us about how God is our Savior through the work of Jesus Christ. But this week, we have the opportunity to explore the kingship of God using this remarkable passage from, the chapter, from chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. Reverend Scott Jose, one of my professors of preaching at Calvin Seminary, once said that a wise preacher would sit down after reading Revelation 4 because it is such an awesome passage. There is nothing that we can say to capture its beauty and its awesomeness other than just reading it. But after saying that, Professor Jose went on to preach a 25-minute sermon, so I feel like I'm in good company. But this is an awesome passage. And in keeping with the rest of the book of Revelation, this passage pulls away the curtains that the powers of this world have drawn over the truth of God's word. The book of Revelation, true to its name, seeks to reveal deeper truths in the face of the situation of Christians in the first century. At the time that the book of Revelation is written, Christianity is a growing force in the world. The powers that rule the world at the time are starting to notice and respond with various different actions, primary among these being persecution. The followers of Christ in the first century are subjected to all sorts of persecution. They're kicked out of the Jewish synagogues. They're systematically hunted down and brought before the Roman rulers. They're forced to worship Caesar. And if they don't, they're imprisoned and often killed. And so there are many incredible stories of men and women in the early church who stood firm in their faith in the face of persecution. And one of these stories that I ran across this week was the story of Lawrence. He's the guy who the St. Lawrence River is named after. Lawrence was a deacon in the church in Rome uh, during the reign of Emperor Valerian. And being a deacon, he was responsible for distributing the offering of the church to the poor. But the Roman authorities, following an edict handed down by Emperor Valerian, executed the Bishop of Rome, who was Lawrence's pastor, and in turn, they demanded that Lawrence hand over the wealth of the church to the Roman government because they were under the impression that the church was very rich. And according to the tradition, Lawrence asked for three days to collect the wealth of the church and get everything in order. And after three days, he appeared before the Roman prefect where he presented the Roman rulers with a crowd of people. And this was a crowd of people who were poor, who were crippled, who were blind, who were orphaned and widowed. And Lawrence stood in front of the Roman prefect and told them that this was the gathered wealth of the church, that these were of great value in God's eyes. The Roman prefect was so angry that he had Lawrence killed on the spot because he felt publicly humiliated. He had Lawrence roasted over his cooking fire. But according to the story, Lawrence was so unafraid of his fate that partway through his execution, he cried out, I'm well done, turn me over. The early stories of martyrdom in the church are full, are full of stories like these, full of people who go 
to their execution without any fear, so fearless that they make jokes about it. And these early stories demonstrate the hope and certainty that the early church had. These early leaders of the church were completely unafraid to stand up to the political authorities of their time, even when standing up for their faith meant certain death. Why is this? Why did they have no fear? These Christians lived in a time when it was dangerous to live out your faith. They lived in a time when everything seemed to be stacked against them. They lived in a time when it would be very easy for them to throw out their hands in despair and say, where is God in all this? It's easy to feel like God has abandoned history to run its course. Even in our own times, we watch the news and we listen to the prayer requests that were brought up tonight and we're horrified because it seems like the collaborative projects of humanity are crashing to the ground. The war between Russia and Ukraine seems to be the end of the European dream, the ideals of multiculturalism and international diplomacy crushed by missiles and tanks. The resurgence of war in Iraq and Syria at the hands of ISIS looked like the end of a long dream for Middle Eastern democracy and the end of Christianity in a part of the world that has known the gospel since the time of the apostles. The recent violence in Israel and Gaza has gone a long way towards dashing the hopes of anyone who has prayed and worked for peace in that troubled land. The Christians in Iraq, in Ukraine, in Israel and Palestine, the Christians in ancient Rome, what is it that keeps them from giving up on God when it looks to those outside as though God has given up on them? The book of Revelation gives us something of an answer. The early Christians were not afraid of earthly kings because they knew that there was an authority that was higher than those kings. The early Christians didn't put their hope in the kings of the earth, but in the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The early Christians were not interested in the ruler of kingdoms. They were interested in the creator of heaven and earth. They were not motivated by fear of death. They were motivated by the God who had defeated death by raising Jesus from the dead. And this is the picture that John of Patmos paints for us here in Revelation chapter 4. John is in the presence of Christ who invites him up into the heavenly realm to see what's really going on behind the scenes of the history of the world. And what John sees is amazing. Before him is a throne in heaven and the one seated on the throne shines like precious stones surrounded by a shining rainbow and worshipped by 24 elders and four magnificent living creatures who sing the praises of the king day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the identity of the one who sits on the throne of heaven. The four living creatures praise him as the Lord God Almighty. The 24 elders call him our Lord and God. What Revelation 4 reveals is that behind the scenes of history, behind the scenes of the terrible persecution of the church, behind the scenes of the executions and the property seizures and the exiles, God is in 
control. God rules as the king enthroned over all creation, governing history and sustaining all things in life. By his will, all things are created and have their being. God is king over all. This doctrine, the doctrine of God's kingship, has always been a big deal in the Reformed tradition. This month on the cover of the banner, there's a picture of Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch preacher and statesman of the 19th century, and the accompanying story on page 18 is an interview with Jim Bratt of the Calvin College History Department, who just recently published a book on this great Christian thinker and leader. Kuyper's central goal in life was to call Reformed Christians to live out their core conviction as Reformed believers that God is the Lord of all things, and that we live for the glory of God. And this means that the followers of Christ in the modern world have to recognize and act on God's sovereignty in all areas of life, which caused Kuiper to ask some pretty difficult questions, especially when he was in government. What does God's sovereignty mean for labor conditions in factories, for international trade, for the education system, for political campaigning? How do we demonstrate God's sovereignty in all areas of life? And what Kuiper developed was the doctrine that we now call sphere sovereignty, that God ordained these various different levels of society, the sphere of economics, the sphere of government, the sphere of education, the sphere of uh, religion, the sphere of family, the sphere of work, all of these different spheres, And all of these different spheres have different responsibilities that are rooted in the creation. But at the same time, all of these spheres are affected by human sin. They're affected by the fall. And so the task of Christians everywhere is to bring all of these various spheres in line with their created purpose, recognizing that God is king over all aspects of life, over all spheres of human society, over all of creation. And this can be a difficult thing to do, especially when things go badly. Toward the end of his life, Abraham Kuyper witnessed the outbreak of the First World War, and this shook him to his core. It seemed as though the very fabric of civilization was being torn apart. Everything he had worked toward his whole life seemed to be swallowed by by mustard gas and gunpowder. The very soul of Europe seemed to be sinking into the trenches. How do you proclaim God as king when it looks like God has lost control of history? But that's what makes this passage in the book of Revelation so amazing. John, who has been exiled because of the gospel, writing to the persecuted church throughout Asia, writes that in spite of all the bad things that are happening, in spite of all the terror and violence that the pagan rulers are bringing against God's people, in spite of all the evil that still roams the earth, God is king. God is in control. He has been in control since the beginning of creation, and he will be in control for all of history. As you go through the rest of the book of Revelation, this becomes abundantly clear. God hears the voice of the persecuted church crying out to him to end the injustices of the world, and God responds with power. God hears the cries of those who are tortured and killed for their faith, 
and he responds in glory. God has not abandoned his people, John says, and he is coming again to set everything right, to display his might, to redeem his people, to establish his kingdom over all the earth. The fact that the church isn't doing so well when John writes this doesn't really matter to John. Because in the end, the only thing that matters is the faithfulness and the power of God. And that is something that we can put our hope and our trust in because God is faithful, God is true, and God is powerful to make good on his promises. And so the early church pressed on, secure in this hope, secure in this faith in the God who is king over all the earth, And through his Holy Spirit, God gives us the strength to press on in faith as well. It's good and right for us to be dismayed at the terrors that trouble this world. As Christ cried out to God on the cross, we too cry out to God from this fallen world, asking for an end to these troubles, asking for an end to injustice and violence and war, asking for an end to the persecution of Christians in the Middle East and around the world, asking for an answer to the terrible evils that plague this world. But in the midst of this distress, we do not despair. Like Lawrence of Rome, like Abraham Kuyper, like John of Patmos, like our brothers and sisters living in Iraq and Syria, We put our hope in the God who created the heavens and the earth and rules over it from its beginning to the end of time. And so we can pray together with the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism that God would rule over us with his word and his spirit, that God would strengthen his church, that God would destroy the devil's work of injustice and oppression and persecution. And we pray to our king together with John of Patmos in Revelation 22. We pray together with the early church and we pray together with our persecuted brothers and sisters all around the world. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said. O Lord our God, We trust in you. We believe in you. We put our hope and our faith in you. We pray that you would bring your kingdom to completion and perfection, that you would bring an end to war and violence and persecution, that you would put an end to the devil's work of injustice and oppression and hatred. Lord, we know that you are king and that you are powerful to do this. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his name.